Peyton Manning and the rise of the Big Orange. The Bush Push. Johnny Football. Cam Newton's Four Months to Glory. Vince Young and the greatest performance ever on the biggest stage. The unforgettable college football players and moments come to life again at Saturday Lives Forever, a new podcast series from Saturday Down South. I'm Matt Hayes, and I invite you to come with me on a journey through college football's glorious past, where we celebrate yesteryear with special guests and learn more than we thought we knew about the sport's iconic past. The season one launch of Saturday Lives Forever is just around the corner. So subscribe and download on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. It was just hot, Louisiana hot, humid garbage. It was like the garbage after crawfish boil with all the heads and tails that you throw away, but then maybe the trash doesn't come for like a couple of days, and that stench just becomes unbearable. Like it was, it was just horrible. Uh, how do you have a defense featuring Derek Singley Jr. and Eli Ricks, and you are literally statistically the worst pass defense in the entire country? Like, that's to anchorman levels of, like, I'm not even mad. I'm impressed. Like, that's you the whole wheel of cheese. We've, uh, one of my friends coined the term the Pulini effect, and I think that's a pretty accurate way of summing it up. Um, no, I mean, it was, it was unfathomably bad. I mean, it was record-breakingly bad. And the sad part is, even if you're just normal bad or just normal below average, you finished last year 7-3. and three. Hey, what's going on? This is the Saturday Down South podcast. I am Conor O'Gara. Will, we are covering it all today. We've got T-Bob Bear coming up in a little bit. It's SEC West Crystal Ball Day, and we're trying something new at the end, calling it Let's Get Bold with some bold predictions from you, the listener. But first, Will, I have a question for you. Okay. Do you, and you know, you've been working out a little bit, but I don't think that your build is necessarily in this skill set, but you know, I, I gotta ask just to be sure. Do you want to catch passes for JT Daniels against Clemson? <laughs> I was trying to figure out where you were going. You know, I wouldn't turn down the opportunity. You know, I'm sure the University of Georgia has my email. At some point, I applied there, you know. Um, so if they want to reach out to me, I might, I could throw a mean, like, low block, and then I'm done. Four years of eligibility <laughs> left. Most Facts. important thing. Facts. Most important. And Georgia fans, relax, relax. I, I, man, they, they really did not want to hear about their depth issues in the passing game with the Darnell Washington injury news. If you think Georgia is totally fine at the pass catcher positions and that this is just an overblown camp story, you are more than welcome to do so. That's fine. If you're wondering why a foot injury to a tight end brought on such a strong reaction, here is why. Yes, everything is magnified because it's Clemson. It's Brent Venables, aka the highest paid assistant in the sport. It's nine starters back on defense. It's supposed to be this great clash with Georgia's passing offense. Remember, though, what we were talking about after the Peach Bowl. Wow, JT Daniels, man, he's going to get an entire offseason with you know this new offense and Georgia returns, all this depth on the outside. So he's got so many weapons to throw to. And it wasn't wrong. And, and I don't think it was wrong to say that Georgia would be able to, to work through the Pickens ACL tear that happened in the spring. I was like, 
hey, I love Kiaris Jackson in the slot. I argued he was going to be the most valuable Georgia receiver, even with Pickens. I think Jermaine Burton's route running as a true freshman was remarkable. Getting Dominique Blaylock and Marcus Rosemey Jack Saint back from injury was promising. Demetrius Robertson and Arian Smith are both as fast as the day is long, which should bode well. And hey, is that an emerging tight end in Darnell Washington? Why, yes, it is. And don't forget about James Cook because that dude is a matchup nightmare. Yo. Oh, Eric Gilbert, he's going to Georgia too? Wow, some teams just have it all. A lot has changed in the past few weeks with Georgia's pass catchers. Robertson officially left for Auburn. We talked about the Gilbert saga earlier in the week. Some people think he's going to be back for the opener. Even if he is, which is best case scenario, it's still extremely limited reps in this offense with JT Daniels. The guy was trying to play receiver too, so that was already going to be a challenge. Um, Kyrus Jackson and Jermaine Burton were banged up in the start of camp with lower body injuries, and they're not scrimmaging yet. Dominique Blaylock still isn't back at full go after his torn ACL last year. John Fitzpatrick, the senior tight end who will get a lot more reps with Washington out, was also out for the scrimmage last Saturday with a foot sprain. Here's the problem with all that. Even if Jackson, Burton, Blaylock, Fitzpatrick are back in time for the opener, which many are expecting they will be, now is when you're supposed to be getting valuable reps mm -hmm. with JT Daniels. Remember, JT Daniels was a summer enrollee last year and he was working through his own knee thing and so he wasn't fully cleared until the start of the season. So yeah, I'm, I'm a little worried about that even though I think James Cook, again, yeah, Georgia fans, I get it. James Cook could catch a ton of passes. I think we see Rosemary Jack Saint or Arian Smith have one of these chunk plays against Clemson. That wouldn't be a surprise at all. But this is a game of inches against a team like Clemson. JT Daniels, you know, maybe we see an instance where he thinks a route is breaking off at eight yards, receiver goes 12, and boom, Clemson defender jumps the route, and it's off to the races. That's what I worry about. And I say this as someone who, as I'll get to in my ICC East crystal ball next week, is still picking Georgia to run the table in conference play in the regular season. Okay. If that happens, the uh, yeah, I mean, the path to the playoff, still there, obviously, of course. And, and nobody's going to be saying, oh, if Clemson loses this game. Well, actually, maybe they will if Clemson loses this game because the rest of that schedule is garbage. Yep. Really, really bad. But if Georgia loses this game, nobody's going to be saying George is eliminated from playoff contention. We're in year eight of the playoff system. We've learned that one loss is not a death sentence. But... I just don't think the Clemson matchup is lining up well for Georgia. And I, I thought Clemson had a slight advantage coming into the fall. Now I feel even stronger about that. Will, do you, uh, do you have anything to add to that? Or do you just want me to pronounce the last name of Clemson's quarterback? We can get to that in a second because I still want that to happen. But uh, <laughs> I'll say this. Well, first off, it's uh, kind of ironic that, you know, the whole thing about Eric Gilbert is, is he a tight end or is he wide receiver? And now the story is probably like, dude, show up. Whatever you want to play, you can play quarterback a little bit. Just show up. Uh, anyway, so go with me. You know, you made an interesting point about um, Venables, uh, Clemson's DC. Um, I think kind of like an underrated storyline to all of this is that in these bigger games, there seems to be kind of a trend line where, you know, against Ohio State, against LSU, they came out and they were playing great defense once, you know, they had these scripted plays they started off the game with and they were throwing all these looks at them. And then as the game wore on, suddenly that defense went from, you know what I'm saying, like an A plus to like a D. And the average, you know what I'm saying, is like a C. It was never really terrible, but it was almost like a, a shift in the middle of the game. And so, well, let me take a pause here. You're a little bit smarter than me about things like this. Do you, do you agree with that? The one area I'll push back is I'll say 
what Ohio State and LSU had in those games against Clemson, which that's a fair point to bring up, and I'm sure many Georgia fans are wondering about that right now. It's the receiver position. Right. Chris Olave and Garrett Wilson, arguably the best receiver duo in college football this year. Two years ago, of course, with LSU, we don't need to get into Jamar Chase, Justin Jefferson, Terrace Marshall, all those different guys. They had weapons galore. Georgia right now just doesn't necessarily have those types of guys where the route tree is is significant enough where they can consistently get separation. And that's where I would push back on thinking that Georgia will follow in the same exact pattern, given what we've seen with injury issues in fall camp. Well, Connor, that was the second half of my point. <laughs> it was that those guys, exactly, exactly, these talented pass catchers, these offenses that were cohesive, these guys that have been playing together forever, they, once they reached into their bag of tricks, you know what I'm saying? Once they started getting deeper into the playbook, once they started hitting a rhythm, Clemson's defense went from a good defense to a pretty bad one. And so that's why, going back to your point about Georgia, it's that, you know, missing all these reps in camp, missing, you know, having got X guys run at the Y, having moving guys inside, moving guys outside, moving guys from tight end to receiver, that you don't have that chemistry. So, you know, when a Brent Venables defense, and you know they love these exotic pressures, you know they love to get in your face and scare you. That's what they do. They scare you. And especially against inferior teams, those teams get scared. But these teams like Ohio State and LSU were able to hold their own withstand that blitz and punch back and that's where it gets unfortunate that Georgia's having these injuries you know around that game is that you don't have these guys trust you know you can say it we're all teammates we're all brothers we're all x y and z but if you don't have that chemistry you can't fake that you know and I think Clemson's going to be able to get home with four because that defensive line is darn good yeah I mean, they have three guys on that defensive line who are first team all acc guys to start off the year and mm -hmm. brian brzee and miles turner i mean they are they are stacked in a way that they probably were like 2018 and that's a lot of the comp so if you can get home with only having four guys rush the passer then that doesn't necessarily bode well you can put more guys in the secondary we know how basic numbers work but that's that's maybe the issue that i come back to with the injuries that georgia is having they're going to need uh somebody to take over they're going to need the ground game obviously that we expect to already be good but can it be next level type good keep clemson off the, off the field that offense off the field preventing them from getting in a rhythm I, I don't know we're going to talk a lot more though about clemson in georgia will any other clemson's offense to get to? led by dj Uyangalale. That's the one. It's a fun thing to say. Every single time that, like, if I'm, like, on, on radio or something like that, and I'll hear, like, a host say, and the Clemson quarterback, which means they don't want to pronounce <laughs> it, I then take the initiative to want to pronounce it because it's just fun to say. Certain mm -hmm. things are fun to say, and we shouldn't shy away from them. Just like Tua Tonga Vailoa was fun to say, even though Tua was much easier, but I get it. Today's podcast is brought to you by Saturday Lives Forever. That's right, another new podcast from Saturday Down South. If you heard Matt Hayes on here a couple weeks ago, we teased it a little bit. Matt is digging into some of the biggest stars in college football history. It's part narrative, part interview, and trust me, it, it is excellent. I've been able to hear snippets of this so far. We're gonna have episodes about Reggie Bush, Vince Young, Peyton Manning, and others. It is brought to you by our friends at Texas Pete, so you know that it is straight fire. Matt has been putting a ton of work into this, 
And I know that everyone is gonna love this. It's a perfect thing to listen to right now as we're getting closer to the season. Go to iTunes, Spotify, wherever. Subscribe to Saturday Lives Forever. The first episode will be dropping soon, but if you're already subscribed, it'll just show up on your feed when it's ready to roll. So go do that right now. SEC West Crystal Ball. I wanna preface this by saying 2021 SEC West shades of 2014. Madness, pure madness. Week to week, unpredictability, upsets galore. The type of year you just wanna bottle up and say, let this last forever, because as a fan, this is so fun. And I think that we are going to get a lot of that this year. Maybe we're gonna see some long time streaks come to an end. We, we see perhaps as many as six SEC West teams jump into the top 15. And maybe, who knows, maybe Katy Perry comes back, flashes <laughs> a corn dog at us on a Saturday morning. I actually said that um, earlier, you know, I said earlier in the year that because it's 2021, maybe Cardi B does that. I'm not sure ESPN would roll the dice on having her with a live mic because it is a Disney network. But hey, if Desmond Howard can talk about choking a you know what while literally being at Disney for college game day, perhaps they let my girl Cardi B on college game day as well. I'm just anyway. glad Lizzo's over with. I'm glad that was like, we left her with the pandemic. She's we don't done? have to bring, I mean, we just don't put her in public as much anymore, which I'm very pro. <laughs> I haven't done a lot of uh, Lizzo deep dives in recent memory. Is she's, she's not a thing anymore, Well, No, I think that she kind of overstayed her welcome, which like I said, you know, they brought her the Lakers game. She was showing the whole butt. We don't need that. There are children here, all right? Okay, fair enough. Let's talk crystal ball here. I want to go through, standings we'll do some toughest calls we'll do upsets we'll get into all this so the way i have this this breaking down i'll do uh, overall record conference record and kind of order finish all that so i have bama finishing first boring 11 and 1 7 and 1 in the sec a and m second in the west 10 and 2 overall 6 and 2 in the sec lsu third at 9 and 3 and 5 and 3 in the sec Ole Miss fourth, eight and four overall, four and four in the SEC. Mississippi State seven and five overall, four and four in the SEC. Arkansas also seven and five, but three and five in the SEC. And then pulling up the rear, Auburn at five and seven, and two and six in the SEC. Let's get to that part because I've been I've been asked a decent amount about this. I don't think I don't think I'd be welcomed with open arms on the planes. Right now, if I was going to the Plains, I'd probably need like Chiswick as a bodyguard or something like that. Otherwise, I wouldn't feel very safe. I mean, that wouldn't help you um, too much. <laughs> you know, they love Chiswick. They love Chiswick now. They, 2014, dif different type of conversation. They love Chiswick now and appreciate the role that he had in their lives. Plus, he's, he's a businessman there. He's got his chicken fingers. Um, so the toughest call, at least one of them, was who to put in last place in the West. Because I think the West is going to be really good. <laughs> I, I don't mean to say this to sound condescending. Auburn's probably going to be the best five-win team in all of college football. But it pretty much was down to, and if you look at other projections and stuff like that, everybody was pretty much picking between Mississippi State, Arkansas, or Auburn for last place in the division. And I went with Auburn. I worry about the pressure that's going to be put on the Auburn defense. Against better competition, I worry... The big plays won't be there for Tank Bigsby and drives are gonna stall out without guys who can get separation on third down. There is not a single Auburn returner on that team who had 100 receiving yards last year. I know the Demetrius Robertson edition as well, but guys that were on that team last year, 
I worry Auburn doesn't have enough guys on the defensive line and in the pass rushing department to put teams behind the sticks on a consistent basis. That'll make a good defense struggle late in games. And that's why I have Auburn starting off 0-3 in ICC play going into the bye week. That includes a loss to Arkansas. Because I think you look at Georgia and the LSU games and you're like, all right, you know, that, that kind of makes sense. If you're low on Auburn, you're going to say that they're going to lose those two games. But the one where I get into some trouble, at least where people push back on is, whoa, yeah, I'm losing to Arkansas as well. Yeah, people forget Arkansas should have beat Auburn last year, if not for the botched call on the Bo Nix spike, but that's in the past. So that's where I come back to with this Auburn team is, look, I think that they have flaws. I think they have flaws that are really hard to get past in 2021. I have TJ Finley coming in as a starter after the bye week, which would be after that 0-3 start and then potentially starting that first game in a favorable matchup against that Ole Miss defense. But I, I know that that's something that Auburn fans are really not, not picturing this year. Year one of the Brian Harson era, and last time year one worked out pretty good. But I don't see it following that same sort of pattern. I know we always say never ruled out with Auburn, but Will, when you hear five and seven overall and people hear missing a bowl game, I, there's natural pushback. But am, am, I, am I being a little bit too hard on Auburn going into this year? I, I think you're being hard on them. You know, I think that you're know, looking at that number, I guess, is the first time it's really hit me as far as, you know, all that they lost. No, number one, Auburn has not historically really been a great receiver school. And last year they were loaded at that position. Um, not what they did with that, anyone's guess. But Didn't matter. Yeah. Right, yeah. So it, it's one of those things where it would shock me if they ended up five and seven. I think middle of the pack, you know, but I'm really starting to pull answers as far as why I think that. Um, <laughs> you know, like you said, the quarterback situation is far from solved. I mean, how about this? I like to think of it this way with, with teams like that. It's like you could tell very different stories. The story where, you know, Bo Nix works out or even Finley works out, that's still probably about a 7-8 win team. You know what I'm saying? It, it's, it's not... You know, best their best case scenario, we've, we've done that. You know, we, we did a whole podcast on that, but you're kind of more on the low end of basically it's just tank, right? Like you're, you're basically viewing it as that's the one guy we can count on. Let's just almost take everything else out and that's not going to be enough. I have these visions in my head last year of Mike Bobo trying to scheme receivers open at South Carolina and Shai Smith was the only guy who can get open and make a play. Yeah. And the entire year you're like, what is Colin Hill throwing to? And regardless of what you think about Colin Hill and him as like fake Steven Garcia, Colin Hill wasn't exactly thrown into these big windows. And yeah. part of that might've been, they just don't have receivers and know how to get separation. And part of this is Mike Bobo just didn't necessarily dial that up. And so I worry about that. And I worry about that with the protection issues. And last year, Bo Nix at least had Seth Williams to go throw it up to to get a 50-50 ball when he's scrambling for his life on third down. I don't know where that's coming this year. I just don't. And even if you think Robertson's going to have some potential in this offense, which, you know, the guy's a 2016 recruit. I kind of tend to think if you haven't figured it out by this point, chances are you're probably not all of a sudden going to figure it out at this stage of your career. Who knows, though? I just have a tough time seeing that passing game really work out. And I have a very difficult time seeing that defense, not looking over at the offense, being like, man, can you guys get like two scoring drives in a row? Like that, that'd be great against these better teams. And the schedule is part of it. If their schedule wasn't that difficult, if they're playing against the Big Ten West schedule, yeah, we're not talking yeah. about a five-win team. 
it's just different though when you're up. Everybody can't be eight and four. And so that's that's the conversation we're having is who's gonna be last. And so that's why I had Auburn in that spot. One one quick thing on that. I think you're absolutely right. It's it's, it's not a cop out to say that they could be a very good five win team. The rest of the conference is as good as it's been. And first off, shout out to Auburn still has one of our favorite, absolute favorite chunks, Brodarius mm. Ham. All name team this century? Oh yes, probably. He's, he's a uh, he's a cancer survivor. He is an absolute unit. He wears fifty nevin fifty nine as a number. We love to see that. So that is our our unknown bright spot for Auburn. Really looking forward to rooting for this lad. I tweeted this out last week. We're living in a time in which Brodarius Ham is blocking for Tank Bigsby. Yes, sir. I would just want to say that as the announcer every single game. Brodarius Ham with the kickout block. Freeze up a hole for Tank Bigsby. That's going to be a fun thing to say. As for the rest of Auburn's offense, I don't know that it's going to be that fun. But we love the run game. Not, not to like poo-poo them. The, their run game is going to be legit. I had Tank Bigsby as my number one SEC offensive player coming into this year. Yeah. So I, I, I am high on him. I'm sipping the Kool-Aid. I'm not one of these people who's saying that he's overrated coming into the year. No, I think he is that dude. I think he's just going to be put in some tough spots. Other tough call. Number two in the West. I put AM ahead of LSU, but I kind of hedge because I actually have LSU beating AM. More on that in a little bit. I know, weird. But I gave AM a slight edge overall because of uh, a couple things. I think Mike Elko has his best defense yet. DeMarvin Leal, top five prospect. Love Jaden Peavy up front. That secondary often gets put in some tough spots because of the way that he likes to load up at the line of scrimmage. And I think he does that less this year. And I'm really excited about the AM offense. Mm-hmm. Even though part of me is worried about Haynes King, year one, complicated system with Jimbo Fisher. Uh, Jameis was year one in Jimbo's offense. And I, I don't want to say that Jimbo, um, I don't want to say that Jameis rather is the dumbest quarterback, but he's <laughs> certainly not the smartest quarterback. And he was able to figure things out in year one. Extraordinary talent. Not saying Haynes King is Jameis Winston or anything like that. But it worked out just fine for him. And Kellen Mond, when Kellen Mond went from the the guy that he was as a true freshman, Kevin Sumlin's offense, mm-hmm. to an offseason with Jimbo, and then you see what he was, especially early in 2018, you're like, oh gosh, this guy has definitely made that year two jump in his first year in Jimbo Fisher's offense. So I, I think that Haynes King, as I've said, X factor in the SEC this year, and his surroundings are so good too. There are three guys in this offense that I absolutely love, probably four actually. Anaya Smith, Jalen Weidermeyer, and Caleb Chapman. Caleb Chapman was missed last year because yes, AM figured out who it was, but he stretches the field in a way that they really didn't have that after he tore his ACL against Florida with that huge touchdown in the fourth quarter. By the way, in this offense, you also still have Isaiah Spiller and Devon aging. So this group is going to be a lot of fun to watch as long as they, even if they just have average quarterback play, they should still be really, really good. LSU, I have a few more questions. I worry about not having the balance on offense. The passing defense will improve, but what's going to be the calling card on defense? Like what's going to really be the thing that they hang their hat on? Because I don't know if LSU is good enough to do like a bend but don't break style and rely on turnovers. We forget, as much as we talk about, and, and T-Bob mentioned the stat that I, that I always bring up about them being last in the country against the pass and how mm-hmm. impossible that should have been. Yeah. 
They let up, they let up 4.9 yards of carry last year too. Mm-hmm. Not great. Not really good. In LSU, if we're talking about why I don't have them projected ahead of AM in the division, they also have the tougher crossover because of the Florida game as well. That's a little teaser for next week with my SEC East crystal ball. Will, are you okay with LSU as third in the division, nine and three overall, five and three in the SEC? I think that's an interesting move to have them beating A&M, but behind A&M. I think if they're good enough to beat A&M, they're going to be up there. I, you know, because at that point, it's like, Ooh, you know, they'll certainly lose to Alabama. But no one's questioning that. <laughs> Listen, I've accepted that loss day one every, every offseason, and it just makes things so much happier. But then, that's you know, right. you got to find, what, three more losses at that point that aren't A&M. Um, anyway, so I would say this about LSU's defense. Their calling card is definitely their pass rush. I think they had a lot of young guys last year. Uh, now, maybe they don't have that star necessarily, uh, but they got a, like eight deep, like I'd say like eight out of 10 guys. You know what I'm saying? Guys that are just dogs that just get in and out. And you're right, there's a lot of questions about their defense. Uh, there's way more questions about their offense. Like I said, I think they're going to have a great defense and an offense that is not great. And that being said, it's modern college football, so it doesn't really get you much. Um, yeah, uh, going back to AM really quick, uh, the cool thing is during the Sumlin years, they had these transformative fun to watch talents, right? The cool thing about the Jimbo years has been everyone's solid. Like you look up and down their depth chart and you're like, yeah, the depth. every every position, you're not really scared. You know what I'm saying? It's like, yeah, they, they have some of those guys that are stars, you know, they have Spiller, they have guys like that, but you you look up and down, it's like, dang, like they got a dog at every position. Like there's not a spot where you really, it's just a solid, well-rounded team. And that's the Jimbo, when he's happy, you know, that's the Jimbo footprint. This is what we saw at FSU, whereas every one of those all ACC teams, well, those good ones were just Florida State, Florida State, Florida State, Florida State. A heck of a recruiter, love to see that. I, I don't, you know, like I said, I, I, I think you've got the top three right. You know what I'm saying? I, I just think that it would be hard for me to envision, honestly, this LSU team beating A&M, if we're going to be honest. Mm. That's a good point about AM too. There were some years with the, with the Sumlin era where you're just thinking to yourself, yeah, I know they got Miles Garrett, but you're looking around that defense thinking, this, this ain't going to work. This is why this team falls apart late in the year. They, they just don't have the guys, and they don't have the development. They don't have the right leadership in place there. And now I, I feel like they, they have that, and this should be the best defense that Mike Elko has had. So I think they'll be really similar teams. I think they're going to be really similar teams overall. Sometimes the final records don't always indicate that. Mm-hmm. Biggest upsets. We'll stick with the West on West upsets here, um, or a West team upsetting an East team, although I don't. I didn't have any of those of significant value, um, but we'll, we'll stick with just the, the West focus ones. AM beats Alabama. I'm going to get to that in a second. That's the big one. Arkansas beats AM. Arkansas beats Texas. Mississippi State beats LSU. Those four right there. Yes, you're, you're looking at me, you're squinting, you're going, wait a minute. This team beats this team. Let me repeat that. I went through that a little too quickly. I was about to. Say, I was. I was shocked with the first two. I was like, there have been three yeah. more. <laughs> yeah. I have Arkansas beating A and M. I have Arkansas okay. beating Texas. I have Mississippi State beating LSU, and I have A and M beating Alabama. When I think of setting the stage for those 2014 comps, those are the four games I'm going to think about right there. Okay. That's where I think this division all of a sudden goes. Oh my gosh, it's up for grabs and streaks that have lasted for a decade come down, and that's where I think we get a lot of the, the craziness. So the A&M-Bama matchup, and I've talked about that a little bit, but I've kind of been been teasing that for, for a minute here. 
that was a lot of AM talk right there. So why don't I dig into the, the Bama side for why I think Nick Saban finally loses to a former assistant on October 19th, comes into the year 23-0 against his former assistants. It's not just that College Station is going to be electric, especially after the Jimbo comments over the summer about beating Saban's you-know-what. That atmosphere, second to none. I know there's a lot of talk about the Delta variant right now, but if I'm a betting man, I'm putting uh, the house on there being 103,000 people at Kyle Field on October 9th. Just they're going to find a way. I, I think when it comes to the question about beating Bama, this is no longer uh, a mystery about, you know, oh, can you have success against that defense? I, I believe Bama will have the best defense in the SEC, but with the way that the game is played now, I'd still bank on them allowing north of 30 points in this game. That's not really saying that much. To beat Bama, you need to have a mobile quarterback who can extend drives with his legs. You need guys who can catch balls in traffic and stretch the field, and you need some sort of a running game. AM checks all those boxes. But this comes down to being able to prevent Bama from doing what it has always done best against AM, at least in the Jimbo Fisher era. That is, let these receivers take over. Last year, it was Mechie who torched AM. That was his Bama's number three target. A little bit different trying to do that as the number one. But these passing lines for Bama's quarterbacks against AM during the Jimbo Fisher era are not great. Not great. Yep. Mac Jones, 20-27, 435 yards, four touchdown passes. Woo! Tua in 2019, 20-34 of 34 for 293 yards, four touchdown passes. That's the most pedestrian game of these three. Tua in 2018 was 22-30 of 30 for 387 passing yards, four touchdowns. Do the averages? 69% completion percentage, 12.3 yards per attempt, 372 yards, four touchdown passes. Pretty good. Pretty good. I don't and think that, that happens this year. guys open, bro. We talk exactly. about it so much. It's like, yeah, it's the third receiver. Like, it's whoever's open. Someone's going to be open. We'll figure it out. I promise. It's never just, oh, Bama has a number one receiver, and this guy's automatically going off. Mm-hmm. That, what, what they did so well last year was finding different ways to get John Mechie those looks, and he took over the game. I don't, I, I don't think that happens in the same sort of way this year. And I'm not saying Bryce Young is going to have a bad game and he's going to be stymied or anything like that. But I think AM is able to get more stops. I think Elko adjusts because AM can finally hang with Bama in the trenches and it can get home with a four-man rush with Leal and Peavy. Even if Mike Elko doesn't adjust and he still wants to leave his defensive backs kind of out on an island with all the dudes that he has at the line of scrimmage, they're built to handle that better this year. Miles Jones, exceptional at corner. He's trying to coin the phrase Jones Island because Jalen Jones uh, starting at the other corner spot. Damani Richardson, Leon O'Neal Jr. at safety. They're playing in this game for the third and fourth time. They've been around. I right? was about like, to say, Leon O'Neal was, I remember him talking crap on Twitter to Darius Geis. Like that, that guy's yeah. been around. Yes, he's been around for a minute. I, I'm going to say that Bama is not on the same level that it was at the last three years with those pass catcher options. Mm -hmm. And again, the atmosphere we know is going to be second to none. I think it yields a stunner. And if you think I'm crazy, that's fine. I was called crazy for predicting A&M to beat Florida last year. And I predicted that it would be a 42 to 38 A&M victory. I was wrong. It was a 41 to 38 A&M victory. So take that for what it is. No, I'm kidding. My predictions usually suck, let's be honest. But 
I feel better about that Unless one. Unless they're QB battles. You need to just like build a little island of QB battles and only talk about Ooh. that. And then people are going to think you're really smart. <laughs> yeah, the Will Levis, Joey Gatewood thing playing out pretty well. Looking like Joey, Joey Gatewood could end up going to UCF as we were talking about the other day. Yep. So had, had that one pegged, although it was, a, it was a pivot off the original take that Bo Allen would be the starter at Kentucky. But nobody needs to Nobody remembers that. that. Don't worry about nobody that. Nobody remembers well, uh, am, am I crazy for thinking that this could be possible this year, that A&M finally gets over the hump? It's, it's you know, it's like picking uh, cryptocurrencies, Connor. It's like, it's going to be crazy, right? You don't know how it's going to be crazy. But no matter how it is crazy, you go back and be like, dang, should have seen that coming. And <laughs> that's the thing. Like, that's how 2014 was. I love, you know, I love the spirit of it. I think that, yeah, it, it we have talked about all these different, I hate to say warning signs, but all these different things that are going on that are making things seem very wide open this year. Um, and like I said, I do think it's a little bit a little bit interesting to go Alabama's number one, but they lose to A&M, and then LSU is third, and they beat A&M. I, I feel like, but again, that's like whenever you look back at those years, you go, how did we get, the record thing is weird, man. Like, it, you, we always think about records as an independent vacuum, and we say, oh, this is an mm-hmm. eight-win team, this is a nine-win team. But then whenever you look back, like if you just, do yourself a, a service. Go look at the SEC standings in, I don't know, let's say 2012, just a random year. Go back and be like, huh. You know, this team, like, you know, Arkansas or whatever, it's like they had to get X number of wins. They beat all these good teams to get there. You know, so, like, it that that's the thing. So, I think it is going to be crazy. I think it's going to be historically fun season of college football. As we talked about, there's not a ton of incumbent quarterbacks. There's not a ton of, ton of names that we can um, – Hang our hats on, like you were talking about Mac and Tua. I mean, those are guys that, you know, were bona fide stars. And obviously, um, Young is, you know, he's a great player. He's a great recruit. He's yet to take a snap. Maybe he comes in, lights the world on fire, and, and it's totally different. But I, I just think that, yeah, I love the chaos. I, I and, and if we look back at the year and go, you know, you weren't far off, I don't, I don't think that's absurd for sure. So the chaos, there's usually not down-to-the-wire chaos in the West. It's not like the Iron Bowl. I mean, the Iron Bowl decided a trip to the SEC Championship in 2017. I believe that was the last. Yeah, because yeah. Alabama already had it basically locked up, um, had it locked up last year, and then 2019, LSU controlled their own destiny, all that stuff. Um, so I have AM losing to LSU in the regular season finale, mm. which would be AM's second SEC loss. Oh, I see what we're doing here. Okay. Because I have them losing to Arkansas for the first time in a decade. And I, I can explain that if you want. That's more. That's a lot based on, I think, Barry Odom throwing some things at a, a new starting quarterback and, and going back to the way that Matt Corral was very flummoxed from some of the, the different packages that he saw and some of the speed that Arkansas is going to be able to play with with 10 starters back in the defense. But that's why I think Arkansas gets over the hump against AM this year. But, and I'll talk a little bit more about that later in Let's Get Bold. Um, but AM, if it were to have control of its own destiny going into that final weekend, and you just need to beat LSU, easier said than done. But think about how crazy that would be. They would own the tiebreaker with Bama, with both of them having one loss in the SEC to that point. But what a bittersweet year that would be for AM because you'd beat Bama but then you would still miss out on a West title because you lost to LSU and Arkansas. And meanwhile, LSU would have a really nice case to get to a New Year's Six Bowl, though that could come down to the the game against Florida. 
So man, is that enough chaos for you? You know, as you're as you're explaining, because this is exactly what happened in Florida last year. Florida, to be fair, already had the East locked up. But they came into the LSU game just thinking like, all right, we're good. We're, we're like, basically, if they had beat LSU, they were almost a lock for the playoff. You know what I'm saying? Especially for how close they had played Alabama. They were like, okay, boom, like we've had this season go down. But I mean, they, they barely dropped when they lost to LSU. You know what I'm saying? So I, I think that, and, and, and it's so perfect too, because this is exactly what happened to A&M in 2012. It was, it was 12, yeah. Whenever they actually beat Alabama, it's that Alabama will have one or two mistakes a year. Now, it will never result in two losses. You know, they'll have a bad game that they'll get their way out of, like Ole Miss last year. You know what I'm saying? But um, point being, that's so perfect because, you know, they could have a bad game against A&M, and whenever Alabama loses, they get angry. They get better. Whereas whenever a team beats Alabama, they start to kind of rest in their laurels a little bit. We've seen it time and time again in that, you know, it's not impossible for Alabama to lose two games in the SEC, but like, I remember this in 2019, going, okay, well, the, the top of the mountain is beating Alabama. You beat Alabama, you go, oh, we got a lot of games left. And, the, <laughs> and you just look at the schedule and you're like, we, we got to win out. There's no, you know what I'm saying? There's no way to, because to, then, you know, if that happens, then it's, okay, boom, maybe in the postseason, you got to play them again. So it's, I, I could really see that happening. I mean, you talk about wrestling on your laurels. Ole Miss beat Bama and then lost to Memphis after that (laughs) it's just not easy it's just not easy to do but like 2014 i still have bama coming away with the division after all that craziness bama puts its head down it's able to figure things out it's able to establish that identity that it's looking for and the defense is able to carry it in some of those tough moments any other takeaways besides the west is just going to be bananas and awesome and i think we're in for a lot of fun I'm so excited, man. Like that that's literally that's it. That's all I got for you. It's it's one of the like I said, bro, cryptocurrency. At the end of the year, we're going to look back and we're going to be like, "Huh, of course." You know, and like it's yeah. so funny that like the old school journalists and like I'm glad that you're like not in this camp, but like how quickly you guys want to write the narrative and move on and be like, "Oh yeah, see? Like uh the, like the Heisman, it's done. It's week 5. We're done." And 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 like I feel like it's going to be so hard to do that this year. Um, to like build a narrative and then compare everything against that narrative because I don't even know what that would be. It would, be, I mean, Alabama obviously has this like harrowing title defense. Maybe that's like the overarching narrative. And 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 A and M, you know, they're knocking on the door, but there's not like some big make or break thing. It's just like everybody's just out there scrapping, man. We gotta wait until at least the first week in November when Malik Willis goes to Ole Miss. Oh yeah, and is able to have his Heisman game. We gotta hold off until then. If I see somebody throwing out way too early, oh Heisman's over, it's decided in September. No, 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 no. Let Malik Willis have his time, and then we can we can have that discussion later on. We'll get there. We'll get there. All right, let's go to my interview with T. Bob. It was great catching up with him. Got to chat a bit at SEC Media Days um, a month ago. And anybody who knows T-Bob knows that he is one of those guys that you could probably talk to for two hours very easily. Yep. Got into a bunch of LSU stuff. And not that it matters because I, I don't even like Star Wars, but I could probably listen to that guy talk about Star Wars or anything else. I do not like Star Wars? Anyway. I know. I have I have many character flaws. That's, that's just one of them. So anyway, here is T-Bob. I'm now excited to be joined by a very special guest. It is T-Bob Hebert, 
host of Off the Bench in ESPN Baton Rouge with some guy named Jacob Hester. Never heard of him before. Uh, sounds pretty gritty to me, though, uh, last I checked. Uh, T-Bob, I've got a lot I want to get to with you, but let's rewind a month ago to SEC Media Days. I asked you that Wednesday morning what the karaoke song of choice was going to be that night at Gabriel's. You had it narrowed down to Creed and Tenacious D, which is an all-time decision to have to make. So that night at Gabriel's, (laughs) you bust out Tenacious D the first minute. I'm going to be honest with you here. We're going to keep it real. I, I found myself saying... He bit off more than he could chew. And I'm looking around at the crowd. <laughs> like I'm like, the audience, they're not really feeling this. But then, like MJ against Portland in 92, you caught fire. By the end of that performance, we were all convinced that you were Jack Black with how well you embodied the Tenacious D persona. How much had you practiced that before taking it to the masses? Oh, well, that makes me, it makes me very happy because you're right. Vocally, that, that song goes a lot of places. And I definitely do not have the vocal chops to hit it. But I figured, you know, look, if, if you can kind of emulate the energy of Jables, then that's kind of mm-hmm. half the battle. So that's mainly what I went for. I probably spent, I mean, it was always going to be Tenacious D. The only way it wasn't going to be Tenacious D was if they literally just didn't have Kickapoo in the, uh, in, in the option. So like once that was in, it was, it was good to go. And as far as black goes, dude, Jack Black's always been like one of my muses. You could say, I absolutely love him. And so yeah, dude, getting to sing Tenacious D live on stage people listening even though i'm judicially terrified of karaoke it was uh it was kind of awesome and i definitely definitely sang that song probably like five to ten times to myself in the, in a couple of weeks leading up kind of trying to just work out the kinks before i hit the stage it was darn good and by the end of it by the end of that like five minute song however long it was I, I was uh, I was I was darn impressed. I really was, man. I I, I know too. You were looking to impress with uh, your background dancing, uh, the group collaboration of the famous Bubba Sparks hit "Miss New Booty," which Bubba Sparks even shouted you guys out at the end of the night. I mean, you you had to be though when you woke up on Thursday morning. You were hurting pretty bad, weren't you? Uh, it was not ideal. But, uh, look, you can do anything for three hours, right? So, while it's definitely not something that you want to be regular, I am no stranger to having to push through a horrible sleep cycle because you stayed up for something to party the night before. So, yeah, I was not feeling great, but we made it. I mean, ultimately, you got to rise to the occasion. And as far as Bubba goes, it was really interesting to, you know, get a child. It's awesome and everything. Uh, and it made me happy because it sounds like Bubba's going through some things right now. And, like, the message was basically like, man, this is just like, you know, like when you're down, something like this comes on, makes you happy. So, like, I think we made Bubba Sparks happy, which in turn makes me very happy. What a sentence that is to be able to say. Of all the things that happened at SEC Media Days, I think that's – that's the one you take away from and, and going, I feel good about myself. Um, one thing I, I know you've talked a ton about over the last couple of weeks is the quarterback situation at LSU. I, w- I want to first start with Miles Brennan. 
I think most people listening to this sort of know the background of him, sticks it out, puts it on weights, gets a chance to start in year four, plays well, and gets hurt, comes back, battles, only to get hurt again. What was your reaction when you initially heard the news that he was going to be out with a broken arm? I mean, the initial reaction is you definitely feel for the kid. For I mean, for, for the very quick background that you just came, right? It seems like he was originally heralded as kind of going to be like the man that would break the uh, the cycle of death that quarterbacks were experiencing when it came to LSU. I mean, a place where quarterbacks quite literally, it felt like used to come to die pre-Joe Burrow. And he was always kind of the prophesied one. Then Burrow comes along and, well, he ends up being the one. But that's okay. Then you finally get your chance after Burrow. But then, like you said, yeah, you threw for 1,100 yards and all these touchdowns in three games, and then you get hurt. Oh, but it's okay. you got another year, and there's nobody in front of you, and it's going to be your job, right? You're competing with a, a true sophomore. you got it right. Well, and then you get hurt for camp start. So, obviously, I think anyone can empathize with a guy who has stuck it out for four years and then kind of had that opportunity wrested away from him right before the season started. And, look, just on a personal level, uh, full disclosure here, um, he has been dating my cousin for a couple of years, so I know Miles, oh. and I like Miles, and yeah, so my first reaction, obviously, hugely disappointed for him personally. Interestingly, though, my win total does not change. Like My expectation level for LSU does not change. I think if you were going to ask the coaches who they thought would win the job, not that he would, but like who they would predict, I think they would probably have leaned Max before. I felt like Max kind of had pole position going into camp. There would have been a battle. Uh, but I, I said this all throughout SC Media Days, either quarterback wins the job, I still have LSU pegged at 9-3. and three. I agree with you. And I think that that's the, the best spot to be in. If you're going to have a – a devastating injury to a star player, a household name in camp. I mean, you want it to be a situation like LSU where you feel like you have two legitimate options and your potential doesn't change a whole lot based on which guy you go with. I've got five scenarios for you for Miles Brennan's future. And I think we've kind of, a lot of people kind of just push past that immediately because it's like, all right, it's Max Johnson time. But I'm interested in the next step with Miles Brennan, and I want you to tell me which scenario that you would bet on. So I'll lay out five scenarios for you. So scenario one is he stays at LSU and battles for the starting job next year with his uh, potentially two years of eligibility still left if he wants to do the medical redshirt thing. I don't know what's in store for all that, but we'll see. Scenario two is he transfers to an SEC school back in his home state of Mississippi, so Ole Miss, Mississippi State. Scenario three is he transfers to a non-SEC Power 5 school in need of replacing a multi-year starter, like, you know, I think Miami, Penn State, North Carolina, somebody like that. Scenario four, he retires from football. Scenario five, he transfers to Liberty to replace Malik Willis after he goes number one overall in the 2022 NFL Draft. Which of those sounds best to you for Miles Brennan? Um, I think what makes the most sense, and I don't think him staying at LSU makes the most sense long-term just because, uh, although, look, the other big takeaway from Miles getting hurt is obviously you lose a ton of depth, right? You go from having two really good options to then a true freshman behind McGarrett and Nussmeyer. That said, Nussmeyer has some cojones on him. He's He's an exciting mm-hmm. little cat. He's like a ball of chaotic energy like you don't want him playing right now he's too raw but 
I think Nuss is going to be good with some uh, kind of, you know, some 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 rounding of the corner, some kind of shaving down in some of the rough spots. Then you got Walker Howard, the number one quarterback. Now that Quinn Ewers is in this class, the number one quarterback in the country coming in, and you'll still have Max Johnson. So, like, it unfortunately it feels like fate has kind of intervened and maybe his time at LSU is coming to an end to it. I would think the best thing for him to be to do would be to return this season whenever he can, which obviously is the plan. And look, if disaster has struck, maybe he like ends up playing, but if not be the backup, be ready. You still have a great chance that you'll have an opportunity and then transfer after the season in terms of where he transfers all those options you said make sense. I don't know that I have a great opinion one way or another in terms of which like transfer scenario would be the most likely. That's all fair. Yeah. And, and I think that that's the thing that I'm probably not considering enough is, well, theoretically, I mean, we, we think we have these quarterback rooms figured out and then very quickly in two months they can change. And LSU in 2020 is the perfect example of that with the way that Max Johnson emerged down the stretch. And when he finally got a chance to start, you're like, oh, this this is what everybody's been talking about. He looks a lot better when he's not just getting some of these random reps or it's garbage time or whatever the case. The Max Johnson yeah. part of this is why LSU fans rightfully still feeling optimistic as he talked about. You, you still have the nine and three projection for 2021. I haven't heard a single negative word about the kid yet. <laughs> and I wasn't necessarily selling my Miles Brennan stock. I'm still going to hold hold on to that. But that's because I thought he and Johnson both had that all SEC potential. What do you think Max Johnson's upside is? Well, I mean, yeah. And look, let's be clear. I think there's strange just lying different department, right? Like Miles just had Miles without a doubt has way more arm talent than, than Johnson does. Um, I mean, that's Miles' greatest strength. And Miles was really pushing it vertically last year before he ended up getting hurt. So I think long-term, like, I think Miles will still get a shot at the league and everything potentially, even with this crazy kind of path that he's had to take just because his natural talent is such that it's really hard to find a guy like that. As as far as Max goes, his main strength seems to be more uh, in the intangible department, Right. Um, now, he can make the throws, although you're not going to write home about his arm talent. Uh, he has nice athleticism that helps him as well. So he is a threat on, like, RPOs and whatnot. And he can extend some plays. But really what separates him, I think, are the intangibles. His decision-making, his kind of leadership, kind of a cool head under pressure. Um, I, I do know that LSU is very advanced in – kind of uh, the analytics department and using science to kind of break down these players' strengths and weaknesses and taking advantage of what they're best at. And his processing speed is pretty off the charts, which makes sense. His dad being a Super Bowl-winning quarterback and a 15-year NFL vet, he too would seem to, you know, would uh, surely have, like, elite processing speed. So uh, I think more of Max's strengths actually probably lie in the mental department, which – at quarterback is is really good. I mean, Joe Burrow's greatest strengths are not anything physical. It is that it factor that he has. It is the intangibles. Max doesn't, you know, he's not on the Burrow level. Not saying he can't get there, but um, but but he's more of that mold. I've always wondered this: How different is it snapping to and blocking for a lefty? 
I don't know. So I uh, snapping too, no different. That's that that's nothing. Like that doesn't matter at all. Um it is very different for the receivers. Talking to receivers. It catches you a left handed ball versus a right handed ball. In fact, if you are looking for a weird silver lining to the the bad news with Miles, it's that because their skill sets are so differently or are so different, now Jake Peets doesn't have to kind of create two different offenses tailored to each guy. It, it removes any question about who the guy will be. So you, you gain a singular focus. And in terms of the receivers and quarterback, where accuracy is a function of timing and accuracy is the most important skill to have as a quarterback right next to decision-making, it becomes almost a bit of a shadow positive that you get to work purely with the lefty and get all of that timing and everything down. Blocking, I've been wanting to learn this answer as well because – Blindside growing up used to be such a big deal, right? But that was also more in the age of like five-step drops and seven-step drops and holding on to the ball a bit longer and needing these plays to develop more. And so a quarterback had his back exposed to defense for a longer period of time. In the age of the spread, you were designing a lot of things to just get the ball out of the hand as quickly as possible. And then if you look at how pass rushers are being utilized in the NFL now, it doesn't seem like the coordinators care as much about going against the blind side than they do, okay, who's their worst tackle, which a lot of times is the right tackle, and we're going to line up our best uh, guy against them. So I I would love to see some study done where you look at, like, all the drawbacks of a year and, and, and you actually figure out, okay, does blind side still matter? Our defense is still prioritizing blind side. If you compare the rush to the blind side versus the front side, like, what percentage of the time does he escape it compared to one another? So I don't know that I have a great answer. It's something that I've thought about a lot as well, and I hope that somebody does some research in that regard. I bet Cole is already on that, probably. He's oh. just sitting down right now, just <laughs> breaking down like eight hours of, of different technique. He's talking about a Louisiana Tech right guard or something like that, and he's like, yeah, this is this is the way that it's done, and he'll do a three-second clip that he'll rewind. That's that, hey, that's why Cole has has gotten to where he is. That guy knows his stuff. Um, I think some guys make their offensive lines look better, and some guys just sort of want to do their own thing. It, it's almost like the guy in basketball who doesn't ever use the screen. He's just gonna end up doing his own thing, and maybe a little bit of a Cam Thomas or something like that to give it an LSU comparison. But then, you know, in football, there are certain quarterbacks who I think are, are good at that, and then there are certain guys who are just gonna, they're gonna be pretty much the same regardless of, of how good their line is. Where does Johnson kind of fall in that camp for you? Hmm. I mean, certainly he can extend play with his legs. So you saw that last year. That's generally very helpful to a quarterback. Uh, one of the best things, though, and one of the most underrated parts of quarterback play is footwork, and it's especially footwork and how it pertains to manipulating the pocket. I will never forget an article that really stood out to me. Uh, so at The Athletic, there's this guy who covers the Niners, I believe it is, and, and, I, and I'm going to butcher his name because I can't remember off the top of my head. It's like Tim Murkama or something. He's very famous. Um, but he had a Joe Burrow preview, pre-draft. And he highlighted Burrow's ability to manipulate the pocket with subtle body movements. And even though you're seeing it, I guess I had never just so viscerally seen it laid out, but you can really help. Like, like it was unbelievable the way that he was helping that 2019 LSU offensive line, like where, okay, let's say he could almost feel a tackle getting beat off the jump. 
So he would take a fake little jab step up and kind of lean his shoulder in. And all of a sudden you see the entire defensive line, like it's a magnet kind of redirect inside, but then he steps back out. And all of a sudden he has literally redirected the defensive end back to the tackle. And so the potential for a quarterback to help his line out is extremely high in that regard. I don't know that I've seen enough from Matt to, uh, from Max to say whether or not he's going to be good at that. We know the Keishon Butte connection, it's there with, with he and Max, but I'm curious who steps into that number two role. I think a lot of LSU fans are kind of wondering about that because Ed Odron seems giddy about Brian Thomas, the true freshman, and I know John Trey Kirkland, he flashed that potential in the spring game, but who do you expect to, to sort of be that, that number two that, that it feels like you probably need if you're going to throw the ball as much as LSU? Yeah, I mean, that is the million-dollar question right now. Um, the veteran names would be like Kirkland and Dre Jenkins. They both got plays. They feel more like maybe like your possession receivers, right? Like all reliable, and, and then maybe they end up working out as more of a number three option. And then, yeah, I think you kind of go to the freshman. I mean, Brian Thomas is someone that's not just lip service. So, Cucho has extended invites to all former LSU players. You are now allowed to go watch all practice, all scrimmages, all everything. And even though I'm in the media, that pertains to me as well. And so I get to go out there, and I've been watching. And I've, and when you're out there, you know, you see a bunch of people, and you talk. And people love to talk. And there is um, there's a lot of legitimate super positive chatter around Brian Thomas. Now, the whole group flashes, right? Like yeah, Malik Neighbors, Chris Hilton's super talented. Uh, you still got some older names of Troy Moore, or Trey Palmer and Coy Moore. But it seems like, and he's made a lot of plays both times I've been out there, it does seem like Brian Thomas is fighting and kind of positioning himself as a true freshman to be the number two option. It's pretty amazing to hear him say he thinks he's going to be an all-time great LSU receiver given what has come out in recent memory, of course. But I, when I saw that comment, I was like, whoa, like, dude hasn't played a game yet, and this is already the type of billing that he's getting. So I, I did leave out a name there, and Derek Stingley is that name. And I know he's banged up right now, so the plan is for him to be able to kind of take it easy ahead of the opener. Not going to be Champ Bailey as a receiver, and I know the Charles Woodson comps are, are going to be there. To me, I, I envision this, at least in terms of his overall usage, different physical body types, and probably not going to be used as a tailback in the same way, but a little bit of this like 2016 Jabril Peppers thing where he gets two to three touches a game at Michigan. And maybe that's not an, maybe that's like not enough to be like, oh my God, he's a, he's a star on offense, but maybe enough to earn him a trip to New York, which for a defensive player, those are hard to come by. That excites me, but also scares me as someone who just wants to be able to see Derek Stingley at his best playing corner. How do you see all this playing out this year? I mean, I'm not really a fan of the Stingley on offense thing. I think the only way that makes sense is if Stingley just really wants it. And I think yeah. even that's kind of unclear if you look at the public answers that they've given. It's just like, to me, it feels like an unnecessary risk for, like, what's the payoff, right? If you really are that high on your wide receiver group, which they are, like they think they are extremely deep there, well, then why does it behoove you to expose Stingley to unnecessary risk? Especially when we've seen him returning punts, and it's been okay, right? But it hasn't been, like, uber dynamic. Like, it hasn't been, like, Pat P levels or anything like that. So, 
But, but look, superstar management is a hell of a thing, and you do have to treat your superstars differently. It's just a reality of the situation. So if, like, Derek Singley Jr. comes to me, and he desperately, you know, he's like, look, I want these reps. I want to play offense. And, yeah, you have to create a package where maybe you get him one or two touches a game or something along those lines. But if he's not passionate about it, I'm certainly not one to expose him to that. But they, they keep talking. I mean, people, people keep bringing it up. I just can't tell if this is a question that is being more driven by the media or if this is something that they're actually planning on doing. And as you said, they've been very cautious with Stingley this preseason, so we haven't really seen him out there. Might just be one of those things where for the first month of the year, they want every single opposing defensive coordinator to have to get ready for that. And, and they what they want it to just have them in the, in the back of their mind, that extra five minutes in practice, whatever it is, so that when he steps on the field, you don't kind of freak out and go, oh, what's he going to do? We haven't taken account for, for, for this package or that package or, or whatever. So there might be some gamesmanship there, but I don't know. I, I think it's something that, that could even be a week-to-week type thing uh, throughout the season. We'll just have to wait and see. The defense that he was a part of last year, T-Bob, is, is someone who understands football even better than I do because you played it at that level. Bo Pelini's 2020 defense was what? Uh, it was hot Louisiana hot humid garbage it was like the garbage after crawfish boil with all the heads and tails that you throw away but then maybe the trash doesn't come for like a couple of days and that stench just becomes unbearable like it was it was just horrible uh how do you have a defense featuring Derek Stingley Jr. and Eli Ricks and you are literally statistically the worst pass defense in the entire country like, that's to anchorman levels of, like, I'm not even mad. I'm impressed. Like, that's you the whole wheel of cheese. We've, uh, well, one of my friends coined, coined the term the Pulini effect, and I think that's a pretty accurate way of summing it up. Um, you know, I mean, it was, it, it was unfathomably bad. I mean, it was record-breakingly bad. And the sad part is, even if you're just normal bad or just normal below average, you finished last year 7-3. and three. It took a Herculean amount of bad to uh, to make that five and five record. So I think nobody is better positioned than this LSU defense and Durante Jones to have a massive bounce back year because of first off where they're coming from. There's literally nowhere to go but up, uh, and because they have the best cornerback duo in the entire country. And I think their defensive line looks really good, dude. I think their D line is going to be their best D line in many years. I think a lot of the pieces, too, are promising, at least, in the right system. That, that's the biggest thing we saw last year. Even if you have talent, you can find a way to, to mess that up. Durante Jones comparing what you've seen so far, the way that players react to him, as opposed to the way that players react to Bo Pelini, which you could watch that from your couch at home and see that yeah. dudes were not <laughs> reacting to him. I mean, it was just unbelievable. How different is it based on just the, the overall reaction from LSU players? I mean, in that metric, it is like, and I do not use this term lightly, it is the polar opposite. I, and I mean that literally, like the most opposite that you could potentially imagine. First off, in Durante Jones, you have someone who is, you know, his roots are being a high school coach originally and a high school teacher. And so he places a lot of emphasis on that. You have someone who has been a longtime position coach in the NFL, which means you generally 
understand how to coach a lot of different, very strong personality types a little bit better. And you have someone who hasn't been a coordinator before. So he's still hungry and humble and has, uh, you know, a, a, just kind of a, a, still a little bit of a drive behind him. Where in Bo Pelini, you had a lot of opposites in that regard. You had someone who's always kind of been at the elite of coaching. He's been used to being a head coach where nobody could really check him. And, and LSU was not an opportunity. It was just kind of like the next job again. And then, and then even this place, I mean, right? Deontay Jones is going to become LSU's first black coordinator ever. I think they had like a, a an offensive coordinator maybe for like one season or something along those lines. And yeah, in, in a sport dominated by majority young black men, that is shocking to say the least. But I, yes, absolutely. Deontay Jones can relate to these guys better and their experience is much better than that of, uh, than Bo Pelini could. Should Ed Odron be on hot seat lists right now? Um, no, I mean, I no. That, that was one of the most surprising things about SC Media Days. How many people seem to think he is on the hot seat? Now, look, if it goes like full Chiswick and it's like another, you know, horrible, record-breakingly bad season, then yes, two catastrophic seasons in a row at almost any major program will immediately get rid of your job security. But no, I mean, two years off of fifteen and zero and a natty. I do believe that he's got a lot more rope than the uh, than the general public, or maybe the, the the kind of national mind share seems to think. The Les Miles deal. You played for the guy. You do the world's best imitation of the guy as well. Um, that that is still the hardest I have ever laughed on this podcast when you came on and did that last year. I was trying my absolute best not to get the hiccups in the middle of that and succeeded, thankfully, but barely. I, I know this is a, a tough subject for you, but how, how difficult has this been to, to sit back and watch his fall from grace the last few months? Um, if I'm being particularly honest, I don't know if it's been too difficult for me personally. I mean, you kind of get it how you live, right? And if you're doing those things, eventually it's going to come to light and don't be an a-hole, right? I mean, can we curse on here? That's kind of like the bottom line. Just if, if, if you do asshole things, you'll eventually suffer asshole consequences. And it sounds like that's what's happening. Has that been awkward to talk about on your show? Because I imagine a lot of people have been reaching out to you for insight about less. And, oh, you know, did you see this going on, that going on, all that stuff? Like, how, how have you and Hester tried to try to approach that subject and, and be able to, to, you know, to be fair to someone who obviously had a big impact on your lives, but at the same time, it's like, you know, th the facts are all out there at this point. Yeah, no, I mean, it had been terribly awkward because, and, and so, so, so the, the, the awkwardness in discussing the problems of LSU of the off season and the, and the workplace harassment and everything else that took place, the, the, the weirdness more so comes in there because all the main power players are gone, right? So yeah. you want blood and you want justice, but the AD is no longer there and the school president is no longer there and the head coach is no longer there. And these are the guys who are directly referenced as the decision makers responsible for these bad decisions. So there was definitely kind of a cry for blood where it's like, well, then who, like, who, you know, where does the buck stop? There, there's an awkwardness there. In terms of talking about with Coach Miles, no, uh, no real personal awkwardness because, again, it's, it's just like, 
I mean, you know, we know nobody. The players don't know that stuff's going on. You you don't see him like talking to babysitters or whatnot, or being told that he like can't be in a room alone with female employees of the school. So, and 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 honestly, I think that's something too that absolute power corrupts absolutely. Right? You, you spend enough time in a position of power. You kind of lose yourself more and more in the things that got you there. That's why the greatest ones in all forms of business are those kind of weird, obsessive people who can keep that drive and that perspective no matter what. But if you just look at the timing of the accusations and everything, it's almost even post me and Esther. Like, it kind yeah. of starts 2012 on, which then becomes fascinating in its own right, because already we all kind of know and can feel that that, 2011 national championship was this sort of haymaker that LSU never quite recovered from. And this maybe even pushes that one step further where if we really wanted to just kind of make some logical jumps that are maybe irresponsible, it almost starts to feel like miles even started to lose his way a bit more after that national embarrassment. I want to close with five rapid fire questions for you. It's just first thing that comes to mind and then we go from there. Does that sound good? Uh, that sounds great. I could be very long winded, but I'll try. <laughs> Best player you ever shared a field with and Easy. it doesn't have Fire to Matthew. be LSU. Okay. Fire nice. Matthew, well, no question. I, I will, okay, okay. If it doesn't have to be a teammate, Cam Newton would be the only other one, but you'll never catch me picking Cam over Tyron. But Cam was definitely the best player I've ever seen on a football field opposite of me. But Tyron Matthews, I'm like, and, and look, and I'm sure a lot of them's a Pat P and everybody. Pat P's a dog and up there too. But like, there's never, ever, ever been anyone like Tyron. It was insane. If I ever suggest to Hester that any human being is a better football player than him, I just kind of watch the reaction because at this point I know not to poke the bear when it comes to, when it comes to that. But I mean, I think people have already, you know, because his career was so short as well at, at LSU, he didn't have one of these like, you know, four year type careers where he gets a little bit forgotten about almost in a weird way. And I'm probably guilty of that to a certain extent. Well, um, and it, well. the thing is, it's, it's, it's not just about his play on the field, even though that's obviously excellent. Look at all the money he's got played in the NFL, right? Uh, but sure, I'm not going to sit here and say there's best safety, but you've just never shared a locker room with a leader like this. Like, on top mm -hmm. of just being an excellent football player, his ability to lead men, his charisma, it's, it's, it, it was just unlike anything I'd ever seen in my entire life. Who, uh, who benches more right now, you or Hester? Me, easily, and I haven't benched in years. Oh, that, was, that was my go-to party trick, though, dude. I used to throw up 445 back in the day. I, I benched for the first time. I think it was like a year and a half ago, maybe two years ago. I had a bench in years then, and I was repping 315. That ain't no problem. You suck. Oh, gosh. That's, that's the worst. <laughs> you people, you know what? You get in there, you just throw a couple of plates on. I'm just going to throw this around. No big deal. It must be nice. It, it must be really nice. You'd be able to throw that around at a party. Oh, you know, this was going great <laughs> yeah. up until you said that. Yeah, everybody everybody loves the guy busting out the bench press at the party. He'd be like, hey, bros, do y'all have, have a rat? Do you want to see something, dude? See something impressive, bro? Oh, yeah, me easy. I would oh. smash it. <laughs> All right, you're a dad, so you can answer this. Uh, why is Moana better than Frozen? Um, 
Well, it's, it's not. So I think we have what? a core problem with the premise of the question. Uh, I love Emmanuel Miranda, and Moana is excellent. Moana is great. But in Frozen, uh, we have a fascinating two movies where in the first one, a little more run-of-the-mill, a little more of your traditional uh, princess fairy tale with some more female empowerment, which we love to see. And, you know, something slipped on their heads in terms of, being based on the old Hans Christian Anderson like tale about the White Queen, and but you know she's actually a very sympathetic character in Frozen. And then in Frozen Two, you get this kind of epic fantasy storyline where all of a sudden uh, Elsa is the missing fifth element, and her power levels are huge, and you've got you've got uh, wind, water, earth, fire. So uh, no, with Frozen is uh, objectively better than Moana. All right, I was I was I was gonna stick to Frozen One, although I'll, I'll give you this: "Lost in the Woods" is the best Disney song ever created, ever. A, I mean, look, Frozen Two, Frozen Two's soundtrack is very interesting. And in that leaving theaters, you don't find yourself horribly impressed, but the more it's like an onion, the more you listen to it, um, there's just bangers throughout. I mean, "Into the Unknown." Um, uh, like you said, lost in the woods is absolutely excellent. I'm missing one more. That is fantastic. It's ironic. I thought frozen one soundtrack was better when I left the theaters. I think frozen two soundtrack. Okay. I would go frozen two soundtrack, Moana, then frozen one, actually over the test of time. That's how it's ended up shaking out, which is crazy because I was obsessed with the frozen one soundtrack before I ever had kids. When I was a young 20-year-old getting blackout drunk every weekend in New Orleans, I used to listen to it whenever I wanted to be happy. It was fantastic. Speaking of getting blackout drunk, um, if LSU beats Bama this year, over under 13 and a half post-game beers? Um, I mean, easily. And even if it's not beers, just a liquor equivalent. Um, yeah, are you kidding me? When LSU beats Bama, that's akin to a national holiday here. You should have seen... In 2019, when they won, I was watching my neighborhood with the neighbors, you know, all the all the families over there, the kids are running around. When that final whistle sounded, you could just, like, in the air, you could hear the celebration, cars honking, people yelling, just, like, all throughout the neighborhood, throughout the city, throughout the state, really. So, yeah, uh, over. Smash it. Easy money. Last, last one for you. LSU will win the SEC if this happens. Mm. I'm trying to boil it down to what I think is the most important thing holding this team back. I think I think it would it would actually if the offensive line play could be elite, which I don't think they will be. But if they could be elite, that would probably be the single factor that I think could have the biggest impact on um, on giving this team a chance. Got to get the ground game back. Huge for LSU this year. Kind of the, yeah, the I, I read it so. Storyline. SEC StatCat does those great analytic breakdowns. through have 56,000 words recently, I guess. Uh, I know it's really stupid, but uh, but I was shocked to learn that LSU in 2019, first in ground yards before contact, LSU in 2020, dead last. That's got to hey. change. Yep. Absolutely. Absolutely. T-Bob, this has been great, man. Really, really appreciate the time, and uh, we'll talk soon. Hell yeah, Connor. Talk soon, man. Will, no figuring it out today. Instead, we've got a new segment 
talked a lot about my bull predictions in front of this podcast, or basically if you've been listening to this for the last few months. So I wanted your bold preseason predictions for those of you in the Saturday on South podcast Facebook group. Thank you. If you have not joined that yet, you absolutely should. If this goes well and y'all enjoy it, we I think we could do this as a weekly staple or like an every other week sort of deal in season. And we'll just have everyone offer up bold predictions heading into a specific weekend. So we could do it something like that, where it doesn't even have to be game specific. I know people are really into kind of gambling with some of the props and stuff like that. So that might be something that we could incorporate as well. We're still going to be doing figuring it out moving forward, just kind of figuring out the exact right way to go about it. See what I did there? Um, we have a lot of really good ones here. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to save some of these for next week. In fact, I'll, I'll do... I'll save the SEC East ones for next week and we'll focus West today. We'll keep it all, all consistent within the divisions. So this very first one is from Brian Isaacs. Brian says, Arkansas finally beats Texas A&M. Brian, I agree with you, man. It is hard to believe when you look back at some of these games, it's hard to believe that it hasn't happened since A&M has been in the SEC. 2011 was the last time it happened, but seven of the nine Arkansas losses were by 12 points or less. That's, that's, water's gonna find its level, one would think, at some point. And like I was saying before, I think Haynes King going up against Barry Odom, the unique 3-2-6 that he likes to run, I think he has a rough day. Yeah, three two six. Will's happy to hear, hear that shout out. Defensive alignments, love to see it, anyway. <laughs> I think Haynes King has a a subpar day, not not as bad as a, a Matt Corral type of performance against Arkansas, but where he makes at least a couple of those mistakes, two Jalen Catalan interceptions, and Arkansas wins to start four and zero and get into the top fifteen. Because if you beat Texas and if you beat Texas A and M, you're getting into the top fifteen, and they might even be getting it. They'll probably if they beat Texas they would probably get into the top 25, I would assume so, which would be monumental for them. And it would be a really, really fun time to be in Fayetteville. Do you think I'm maybe sipping the Sam Pittman Kool-Aid a little bit too much, or is that something that you could see happening? Dude, I'm dying at this document. We're on like page nine of this document, and the, the first bullet point under Arkansas beats a is just, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Agree. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I think it's it's interesting. I, I actually didn't know that stat. That, that's I, I guess I haven't like tuned in every game. So like you said, I just kind of assumed it happened at some point. Um, no, that I, I, I think it has to happen eventually. I think that this is the year to do it. Um, and that's going to be, I mean, regardless, <laughs> Jimbo versus Sam Pittman is going to be a fun game, man. These games have been good, too. Yeah. They really have been. And I, I tend to think that A&M is, is going to have moments where you're like, oh, they they can do things that, that anybody in the country can. And, and the ways that they can beat you, especially from the offensive side of the ball and the dudes that they're going to have at the line of scrimmage. But... They could have a, a moment of weakness or two early on. And I, I, I penciled that one in as that, that rough moment. Second one, Will, I know you're going to have a lot of takes on this. This is from oh. Tucker Medlin. Yeah. Tucker Medlin's bold prediction for 2021 is LSU goes 6-6 six and six, but doesn't fire at Odron. 
I don't know if he survives that because context is important. That would be the two worst seasons of the 21st century for LSU in consecutive years. Mm -hmm. LSU could also potentially find a way to fire him with cause. That seems to be the new rage these <laughs> days. How do we get, uh, that was a, a podcast a podcast that we did earlier in the year is, how are teams gonna avoid the ever-growing buyout trend in this sport? Is the bubble going to burst? You look, you look around, go ask Tennessee about that, or Nebraska with some of the Scott Frost stuff that came out this week, and everybody's kind of wondering, man, are they trying to get out of that $20 million buyout by having NCAA violations that appear to have come from a leak within the program? Um, depending on how this Title IX lawsuit all shakes out with Ed Odron, who's been named as a defendant in that lawsuit, they would probably rather fire him with cause, then pay him a $21 million buyout, or maybe they do a lump sum, I don't know. Then again, Scott Woodward still hasn't fired Will Wade. So, I don't know. Investigations, whatever somebody tells look, me. There are places investigations matter, and I'm here to tell you right now, LSU is not one of those places. It's, it's just not, and if we were talking about a different place, if he's at Auburn and this context is there, then we're having a different discussion probably because of what we saw with, with my guy Chizik and the way that all of that played out, different circumstances off the field, of course, but you just kind of don't know. Will, do you think that if Ed Odron had a six and six season that he'd be gone? Well, all right, so that's so like, I hate to give a cop-out answer. That's almost like too open-ended because it would need to be, you know what I'm saying? I mean, if they lose to every good team on their schedule, he's gone, right? You know, just, so if they if they win all the cupcake games and lose all the hard games, then yeah, he's, we're bad. They need to turn it over. Um, Coach O's got a couple things going for him. Again, we've joked about it on here. His recruiting classes are like shockingly good. Uh, like considering everything that's happening, like they had like, you know, they were a higher recruiting rank than their win total for like a long part of last year. And so we were joking about that. But the thing is, I'll say this about, you know, my people, kinda. They can be very up and down, okay? So they can love you one minute, you know, they can not like you the next minute. And it's all about how the season ends. So I'll give you an example. This season, right? We thought Coach O was a dead man walk. Not that he was gonna get fired this year, but that he was on the way out. And then, you know, boom, the old Miss game and the Florida game happened. And, you know, you talked about the, um, <laughs> You talked about the bad seasons. I had this stat that I would always love to pull out. I'm gonna stick with it because LSU technically qualified for a bowl game last year. It's like LSU hadn't missed a bowl since I was two. You know, LSU yeah. fans are very Nueva Riche. Um, my generation of LSU fans doesn't know what it's like to suck. We, we really don't. We had 08, which was uh, a seven win season that turned into an eight win season with this blowout of Georgia Tech. Um, but we, you know, I go back to the Bobby Bowden thing, man. Not that Coach O is on the same caliber as Bobby Bowden, but we talked about that, I, I wanna say last episode, and it's that- The patience. Patience, man, patience. And, you know, Coach O, obviously, he's not, you know, a Kirby Smart tactical mastermind on one end of the ball or, or Lane Kiffin, um, but he's a guy who, those players love him, man. And whatever he's saying is connecting with guys, other than Eric Gilbert, who no one can connect with him. But <laughs> Apparently, yeah. But point being, you know, that was what I look at, and we'll kind of read the vibe from the situation, but as bad as they were, as shockingly bad as they, I mean, nobody thought they'd be this bad. You know what I'm saying? Even I was pretty, like, not stoked, but they were, as bad as things were, 
never really lost the locker room, never really like, never lost in recruiting. And when these guys start to be out their way, you start to see a little bit, we talked about Jimbo at the tail end of FSU, where it's like, I don't care about this. And they're gonna have to drag Coach O out of there kicking and screaming. And if there's anything that he can hold on to, it's gonna be hard, you know, what, two years removed? Two years removed from a national championship. That feels like an eternity ago. A couple of things are worth keeping in mind with this. Not all six and six seasons are created equal. Exactly. As you brought up, if they lose to all their best teams on the schedule, then that's that's different. The off the field issues right now, if we find out more stuff about him, that changes the conversation yep. about him overall moving forward. What I fear with him is the is the potential of that season opening game at LSU, UCLA. or not at LSU, at UCLA. Gosh, that's gonna be a mouthful to say. UCLA facing, hosting LSU. Sunday night game. Yep. If that game doesn't go LSU's way, the comps to Kevin Sumlin yep. will come up. Because what did Kevin Sumlin do in his final season in College Station? When everybody's kind of talking about his long-term future and all this stuff, he blew that massive lead and they lost to UCLA in a prime time game and it set the stage for what was a very forgettable year and everybody knew by, by the end that he was going to be done. Now, Ed Odron has a, has a buyout that's double the size, but it still is something that's going to be thrown out there because that's the way that college football works. And when you've had an eight month off season and that's what you're talking about, there's a bit of this confirmation bias. I, I tend to think though that he has been one of these guys who when his back is against the wall he is usually at his best mm -hmm. he was at a, a very high level in 2018 i thought and making the move to bring in joe burrow mid-season or mid-off season rather could have saved him his job it really could have and will this be one of those years get back to a new year six bowl lsu looks like it just had a one-off in 2020 i think that's what all of us are expecting a nine and three projection with what i have would be just that is that all fair? Yeah. No. And yeah, I mean, it, it's it is pretty unacceptable to go six to six at LSU. So that 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 next season would start with a, <laughs> hey bud, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? If he if he goes six to six and keeps his job, the next season is gonna be real. How we feeling? You feeling good, coach? Yeah. You got your bags. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> Chris Chris Milan says bold prediction. Will Anderson shatters modern pass rush records, though falls short of Derek Thomas, who isn't human. Uh, wasn't human, rather. Um, Golly. Okay, so I, I'm I'm a big time Will Anderson believer. By by the way, that that uh, SEC story on Derek Thomas, really really good. Go check that out if you have ESPN Plus or something like that. You have the archives. Really really good. I like Will Anderson a lot, and he plays that Jack linebacker position at the line of scrimmage and. You look back on some of the things he did as a true freshman, you're like, oh my gosh, he's kind of lost in the shuffle a little bit with all the star power that they had on that side of the ball. But third in the SEC in sacks, seven and a half, and in tackles for loss with 10 and a half. Pro Football Focus had him with 60 pressures. That was more than any player in America last year. Not just talking true freshman, more than any player in America. I think he's a legit first team All-America candidate. If I'm asking who, if I'm being asked who's the best player on that defense coming into this year, it's either Christian Harris or Will Anderson, one of those two guys. Having said all of that, breaking modern pass rushing records might be a little tough might be a little bit tough. And it depends what you're talking about with modern pass rushing records because Terrell Suggs had 24 sacks in 2002. 
if you want to go back just to 2005, I think that's what um, sports reference, college football reference, whatever you want to call it, mm -hmm. that's what they do. The top five in that department, I looked this up because I was curious. Elvis Dumerville at Louisville had 20 sacks in 2005. I'm going to butcher this pronunciation, but Haoloi Kikahawa? Kikaha? Washington? Sure. Did not nail that. Sure. He had 19 sacks in 2014. Nate Orchard at Utah had 18 and a half sacks in 2014. Jalen Ferguson at Louisiana Tech had 17 and a half sacks in 2018. And then Josh Allen of Kentucky fame had 17 sacks in 2018. Also with 17, Von Miller in 2009 and Amir Ismail in 2006. Even Chase Young, Chase Young didn't crack the top five. Yeah. And that dude, he had 16 and a half sacks, so he was really close. He was unblockable. I mean, unblockable. And I know he kind of faded the last couple games, and Ohio State fans were really upset about that. But, man, if Will Anderson gets into that conversation where he's getting 17 sacks in a season, that is hard to do, man. That is really, really hard to do. Even Miles Garrett couldn't get on that level. And we're talking about somebody who's going to be entering his second college season. So, high on Will Anderson. Um, <sighs> Not exactly saying that he's going to break modern pass rushing records, though. I don't hate the take. Don't hate the take. That's why these are bold predictions. I, uh, I'm going to go the other way on this and just let's talk about some dudes really quick. Derek Thomas. Uh, so his set. So I'm I'm reading this to be fair from Wikipedia, but it's cited to the Alabama 2019 uh, media guide. So don't kill me, Connor. The number <laughs> their <they're> number <laughs> one. So their best season for sacks. Derek Thomas, 1988, 27 sacks. Okay. <laughs> I'm not discounting that. I'm not discounting that. But the way that half sacks were treated, I think, in the 20th century is a little bit different, a little bit more subjective. Okay. We now have a lot more people who track that. And I, I'm again, guy's incredible. Go back and watch the YouTube stuff. Unguardable. It really was. But if there's any sort of pushback on the legitimacy of those stats, you know, like... I would understand it at least. So I'm not trying to take away from what he did. Still ridiculously good, but I think we treat sacks a little bit differently now. Alabama misconstruing historical information. Never. Anyway, so their number one is <laughs> their number one is Derek Thomas. At Let's just say he was around the quarterback 27 times and then what? Sure. 11 game season or 12 game season. That's insane. So also fair. Yeah. Yeah. Like at the end of the day, if he was high five on the quarterback after the play that many times, I'm impressed by that. Uh, so yeah, I mean, so their their modern record is Jonathan Allen at 12. Uh, which I, I think is doable. Um, so I don't know. I, oh, yeah. I I think you know that's the thing is like Alabama has this dude and his again, you know, do, uh, nebulous. But Derek Thomas is the career sack leader at fifty two. <laughs> Number two is twenty eight, uh, which is also Gosh. Jonathan Allen. So uh, so point being, you know, yeah, you take Derek Thomas off of there, it's Jonathan Allen, right? It, it's single season, it's twelve. Uh, career is twenty eight. Not that he's like you know, trying to do all that, but um, point being. Um, yeah, I, I think that, that he could definitely leave a mark at Alabama. Will Anderson, I, I think, is in very good position to be able to, to exceed that that 12 sack number. He actually graded out better as a run defender than he did as a pass rusher, which... How about that? How is that possible? Yeah. Guy's really good. Guy's very, very Speaking good. Speaking of He's nebulous, PFF, anyway. <laughs> yeah, there we go. Uh, this one's good. Uh, Jeremy Fisher says... Lane Kiffin becomes the first assistant to beat Saban. Ooh. Spicy take. 
I almost went with this because you're kind of like, well, we saw this last year. Matt Corral's not going to be scared. We know that they can score against Alabama's defense. And if this defense is slightly better, who knows? Maybe they have a chance. But the reason I didn't pull the trigger on that and what's probably going to be baked into the odds when they're settled on, you know, game time odds, all those different things. I still think in Tuscaloosa, Alabama plays a slightly different game. The Alabama defense is going to be better this year. And even if it has those games where it occasionally allows more than 30 points, I think overall it's still going to be better with more of an identity with guys who can get to Matt Corral without sending the extra blitzers. I think Alabama gets more stops this time around, which isn't saying a whole lot after the way that that game played out last year. But I also, in the back of my mind, I wonder about the top 15 thing. Remember, Bama has not lost to a team outside the top 15 since that 2010 South Carolina game, which is the other ridiculous thing that we're that, that could be factored into that. Jeez. For whatever reason, Ole Miss didn't start off in, in the top 25 even, so that might be a little bit tough. That could be on the line. I don't hate it though. I, I don't hate it because if you're doing that in year one, if your offense against Saban, that's noteworthy. Of course it is. And people are going to continue to talk about that. But I couldn't quite get there. I think AM has a little bit more talent, a little bit more depth and balance to be able to, to pull off an upset like that. I'm not going to drag all these out, but I, I will say this. like, I think it's pretty fair to say that Lane Kiffin versus Pete Golding is a little bit of a push towards Lane Kiffin. But, so. if, but then, okay, so then you, you think about it, you're like, all right, how much am I factoring in Saban's input on this defense. No, I know. I'm not in game adjustments. I'm, I'm talking thing. about yeah. his tenure, though. You know what I'm saying? Like that, that we talk about Jonathan Allen. Like I'm just saying, like those defenses are kind of not there anymore. So point being, you know, I don't hate it because Kiffin has proven that he could slice up a good defense. Is all I'm saying. Let's say that Alabama yeah. returns to form and they're a good defense. You know, last year it was that game was a track meet. I mean, that game was so much fun. But I don't. You know what I'm saying? I know that they've gotten better. It's just things are different this year. I, it, it, the pandemic year, you know what I'm saying? I just think Alabama's going to be better this year. But still, I feel like Lane Kiffin is going to be the same dude. So I think that game, it, it, it's going to be fun regardless. You know what I'm saying? I agree with you 100%. And the buildup will be tremendous. And we'll be talking about a lot of those storylines. Assuming that... Ole Miss can get off to a good start as well, which not necessarily a given. It could be an interesting matchup in that opener against Louisville, but I would expect them to still have some you know, top 25, at least fringe top 25 at that point. Listen, Lane Kevin, Ole Miss, this. perfect match. You know, they get up out of bed about 11 o'clock, start shaking it off. You know, they drink some water, right? And then they're ready to rumble. So, you know, mid-season is really what you don't want to see Ole Miss. <laughs> Maybe Lane, by that point, will be down like 40 or 50 pounds. I think he's down 30 pounds at this point. Maybe oh, yeah. he keeps up with the diet. I don't know if he's trying to lose more weight or whatever. I wouldn't dare ask him a question about his weight loss <laughs> or anything like that. How dare you, Connor? How dare I? Let's end with this one. Mikaelin Crabtree. This is, this is bold. This is bold right here. Mikaelin says, Texas A&M wins the national championship. I've been saying this since February and I'm not slowing down. It's a bold take. A&M is in that top six preseason spot that we talked about with Bear Felica, how all the playoff area champ playoff era champions were ranked in the top six to start the year. 
I've noticed that people are kind of all over the place with AM. A lot mm-hmm. of people think that 2020 was a one-off. They're destined to be an eight and four team. Maybe the, the departures that they have on the offensive line with replacing four or five starters there could contribute to that. Others think they're kind of locked in as a top five team moving forward. I'll say this. What would you point to and say, absolutely not, AM cannot win it all? They now have NFL level talent. Mm-hmm. They have this the returning skill players, which in this day and age, you need to be able to have those proven guys. They have an elite defensive mind in Mike Elko. They have a coach who has won it all before, albeit in a different system at a different program. They have a home atmosphere that's second to none that's going to be hell for any team that goes in there. I'm not saying it's going to be, and again, I. I have AM going 10 and 2, so I'm not saying that AM is going to win a national championship. This is McKaylin's prediction, not mine. I'm also not saying that it's going to be a repeat of 2019 LSU because it's unfair to say that any team in the preseason can replicate that success, much less a team who just earned a top four finish for the first time in 81 years. But in terms of the barriers, the the limits of what a program can do. LSU hadn't been to a playoff before 2019, and it blew the doors off both teams that it met when it got on that stage. So you can't do the thing where you say, they haven't been there before, they're not gonna know how to win it when they get in the playoff atmosphere. I don't know, if you have a special team and if you have the talent, which A&M does, what's holding you back? I just think that they're gonna lack a couple of, uh, a couple of, they're gonna have a couple games in which the consistency isn't there top to bottom. And that, I think, is the, the thing that we maybe take for granted with the Clemsons, the uh, Alabamas, the Ohio States of the world. So, again, McKaylin's prediction, my knee-jerk reaction is that we don't quite know a and ceiling, but this year should shed some light on that. But if this happened, think about this. The SEC would have won, again, A&M winning a national title, you know, bit of a flyer. If it happens, the SEC would have won 12 of 16 national titles by five different programs. And there are still people who would say that the SEC is overrated. I mean, at this point, they're banding together to stop the SEC, so I think that's how it can get killed. True. True. Will, any thoughts on putting down a little flyer? Little, uh, maybe a little, I don't know what the latest FanDuel odds on that are. I can't imagine they're... What what are they like twenty five to one for A and M to win a national title? That that might even be a bit too ambitious. Yeah, I mean, so it's interesting because you know you make the point about talent. And I'd say they've always had talent. They are actually a pretty direct allegory to LSU in that way because as time has gone on, you know, they Christian Kirk, Miles Garrett, uh, Mike Evans, like those guys, they're in the NFL. They're doing the same thing. So it's they like, all played on different teams though, basically. I mean, Christian Kirk and, and Miles Garrett had some overlap, but like those guys are all like kind of. They have their specific times, you know what I mean? No, I'm just saying they've always had, like, they've been a loaded roster forever, and it's like they're just kind of waiting to break out, like, knocking on the door. And so, yeah, it's it, you talked about, like, things kind of lining up for LSU. It's like maybe this could be the year for Jimbo because we, we, we talk about, and, like, one thing that you've told me is one of the things that has stuck with me the most is there's such a ceiling on winning a championship when it comes to recruiting. Because even if you don't hit on the guys, like, the guys get in the building, let's say a bunch of them are frauds, you still get enough guys in the building to where it doesn't matter. Um, and A&M has been consistently getting those guys in the building for a long time. And Jimbo, like you said, isn't scared of the big moment. 
You know, uh, like you said, he, he won that Florida game last year. He, at FSU, who's a menace to the University of Florida. Like, you, you know this. And he has, you know, that, he beat Auburn in the title game. You know what I'm saying? Like, nothing scares Jimbo. Oh, well, some things. But anyway, so nothing scares Jimbo on a football field. So Jimbo, so Gatorade Jimbo. coolers scare Jimbo. He, he will run very fast away from those. He's he Gatorade coolers, that. yeah. So, like, that's, that's what I'm saying is, like, the, the ingredients are all there. It's just getting, you know, it's getting past Alabama like the rest of us. So... I'd love to see how those odds develop this year as well. Something that I, I'm I'm going to be fascinated to see with some of these some of these teams who you think they they have the talent to be able to to make a push this year. Even a, a team like Miami is considered kind of this dark horse. Can they make that run because the, the path is more favorable, not having Clemson in the regular season? Like, how do, how do those odds change throughout the year? What would those odds look like if AM were to beat Alabama after that October 9th game? If they were, if, and I've, I've said this before, like if they lose that game against Arkansas, that would be the time to get your bets in, maybe with AM and just kind of roll the dice from there. But who knows? And I'm in for a fascinating season. Man, Miami's in for a season where they could just get their doors blown off in of week one, go undefeated throughout, and then play clubs they get their doors beaten off and get at the end of the season. <laughs> that, that is rough. Anyway. That would be uh, that would be the 2018 Michigan model, where they got the doors blown off, season opener mm-hmm. at Notre Dame, and then everybody's like, oh my God, Michigan's like won 10 it's games year, or dog. whatever going into the Ohio State game. And then Ohio State kicks him in the teeth and Charlie Brown whiffs on the football once again. That was a lot of SEC West talk. We're going to have a lot of SEC East talk next week. We'll get to all of those other good SEC East questions that we got. I know there's a lot that that we we were able to get in the Facebook group with Let's Get Bold. Hopefully that's something that you guys enjoy and that we can do moving forward. Got a first-time guest next week. I think we're gonna have two first-time guests next week. That is the initial plan. If you have not, leave us a five-star review, like, subscribe, go subscribe to our newsletter, go subscribe to both of our newest podcasts, College Football Uncensored, Saturday Lives Forever, wherever you get your podcast, join the Facebook group, hear your name read on air with figuring it out, or let's get bold. Thanks guys, talk soon.